Hello, my love. Welcome to Dying to Know. I'm your host, Izzy. Hey, how are you? I hope you're well. So this is my fourth episode of the podcast now, and we've discussed the difference between cardiac death and brain death, being pronounced dead and what goes into that. And me and my amazing friend Anne-Marie also spoke last week about the differences between death rituals in the East and West of Ireland. For this episode, though, I want to take it further back. I feel like I may have started a little bit farther ahead than I should have. So I am going to be talking about when someone is actually still alive. (laughs) Shock, hard gasp. But when they are dying and what that means biologically. So sit back, relax, and let's explore this together. So I just want to give a quick disclaimer before I get into the meat of the subject and that is that I've somehow done my neck in because I am accident prone and I am a klutz. It was ridiculous. I was washing my hair. I didn't do anything particularly exciting. I had just tipped my head back and then my hair got wet and I brought it forward and I <laughs> I don't know if my neck is just really weak but the unexpected weight of the water in my hair made something happen. I didn't hear any like cracking or snapping. It's no excruciating injury, but I feel like I now have a trapped nerve, which is just hilarious to me because, um, you know, usually injuries you would think come from more exciting things, but no, they also come from the mundane because that's what happens when you were in your late 20s. Your body starts going, oh, you wanted to lift your head up. Well, now I'm going to put you in agony for the rest of the day. I am exaggerating a little bit it's it's not agony it's just a little bit uncomfortable so I'm just saying this disclaimer now because if you hear me shifting around it's because I do kind of have to keep moving positions and also because I can't just really move my head on its own (laughs) I have to turn my entire body um I think I may have spoken about my setup before it is me in my living room sitting on the floor so obviously I might fidget around I'll try to pause recording while I'm fidgeting but if you hear it Please don't hate me for it. Don't tell me. I already know. (laughs) Okay, so with that being said, let's get into what we're talking about today. So a lot of people seem to think that dying is instantaneous. And in some cases, this is sort of true. If we're talking about the case of unexpected or sudden death or, you know, my... The examples that always come first into my mind are always violent ones. But let's say if you get shot in the head, point blank range or whatever the phrase is, That, I imagine, is a pretty instantaneous death, although, you know, there have been uh, kind of arguments against that in the case of decapitation, where people said, oh, the lips were still moving, the eyes were still blinking. But that is something that's highly argued and highly contested, and it could just be muscle spasms, etc, etc. But let's just say, for the sake of this argument, in those cases, we're assuming death is pretty instantaneous. In the cases of an expected terminal illness, dying is actually a process and I think not a lot of people know this or are fully aware of this until they see it happen in front of them until they are unfortunately watching someone they love and they care about pass away slowly it was definitely something I wasn't aware of when I was younger again I feel like that is just a societal thing we're in this culture where we're not talking about it and this is me trying to get more people to speak about it but I think also the media kind of plays into that, you know, you, you might see in TV shows someone's old and they're dying and everyone's sitting by their bedside and it's lovely and it's peaceful and blah, 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 blah. And they're talking and they're chatting. They might be getting a bit weaker, but they can still talk to take our hero's hand and say, I love you and I'm so proud of you. And then their eyes close and they just go, and then that's it, they're dead. It would be really nice if that was the case, but that unfortunately 
isn't really how it goes. Obviously, this experience is highly subjective. As I always say, death is not an exact science, but there are sort of phases or stages, I suppose, of dying when you're dealing with someone who is terminally ill. And these are stages that have been noted and documented by people working in palliative care. And there's kind of, I guess, almost warning signs that you can look out for, because generally, if someone is dying slowly of an illness, it can be quite difficult to someone who is not medically trained to see a decline unless it's rapid if that makes sense if you're seeing someone every day you might not know that this is their last few weeks this is their last few days because as we all know sometimes doctors get it wrong and again that's not a, a shade on anyone um it's just because you can't give an exact time frame no one can say to you you will be dead within six weeks three days five hours and 26 minutes so let's talk a little bit about those stages or those phases of dying. You can kind of call them stages or phases. There are two um, and they are quite obviously and blatantly called the preactive phase of dying and the active phase of dying. Okay, tell me if you've heard this phrase before. I mean, you can't tell me, but if you really want to tell me, you can tell me. Um, from the moment we are born, we begin to die. This phrase is thrown around so much, so, so much. And um, I can understand it from a philosophical and existential point of view to an extent, to a degree. But I am here to tell you that biologically and scientifically speaking, that is just not true. <laughs> I'm sorry to burst your bubble. You are not dying from the moment you are born. Sure, you shed skin cells, strands of your hair will come out when you brush it. Your baby teeth will fall out. That does not mean you're dying because your cells renew. Um, now, if we really want to get into it, apparently, once you reach 25, that's when your cells stop renewing at the rate they were before and they start to decay, which, as you can imagine, is really lovely for me to hear and find out as a 26-year-old. But even if I'm beyond that hill, I've passed it, I'm over it now, and it's all downhill from here... I still wouldn't consider myself to be dying um, because as far as I know, everything's working as it should be. So I just don't like it because I mean, I understand it as a way to make people to reflect on their mortality, but I also think it's just kind of bull personally. Um, you can probably tell I have very strong opinions about death in general, but this is just a pet peeve of mine. But we know the difference between someone who is dying and someone who is not dying. And I guess even if we go beyond those stages, there is also someone, if there is someone who's terminally ill and they've just found out they're terminally ill and doctors have said there is nothing we can do. You have this amount of months to live, roughly. That person, I guess, is dying, you know, so they'll say, so I'm dying. And the doctor will say, yeah. Obviously, much better than I say it. <laughs> Can you imagine just, oh yeah, no, yeah, you're dying, yeah. I mean, what do you want me to do? Um, bedside manner is a must and it is essential. But even that aside, medically speaking, is that still considered dying? I'm not really sure. But like I said, there are two phases. So the first one is the preactive phase, preactive stage, whatever you want to call it. Now, this is around two weeks before the death occurs. Um, obviously, again, Time frames very subjective. People can hold out for a lot longer. Now, from my experience, I can't really remember the exact time frame that this happened. Um, 
I remember the active stage very, very well. But pre-active, oh, it's all a bit blurry. I couldn't tell you when it started, uh, when it really started to like decline. Um, but we'll, you know, enough of me and my anecdotes. We will get into what some of these signs are. Now, again, bear in mind that, it, like I always say, and I've probably already said in this episode already, it's subjective. Not all of these signs will be present. Maybe there will be other signs that haven't been yet common enough to be recorded or they're just signs I do not know. But we're going to get into a few of them. So one of the ones is that they're going to withdraw from social activities. They're going to become a little more withdrawn. And this is quite an interesting point for me because um, I was reading a book that I absolutely adored called The Way We Die Now. And it is by Dr. Seamus O'Mahony. And he was talking about how uh, animals die. And in, you know, if you think about dogs or cats, they go to do it in a solitary way. They hide somewhere. They want to be alone. And he was talking about this this old record of someone who died, but they knew they were dying and they didn't want to speak to anyone. They turned around, they faced the wall and then they died. And I think that's quite interesting because obviously we are a social species, but I think a lot of people do want to be alone when they die. Um, and of course, some people don't and they have to be, especially during what's been going on with the past few years. And I think it's absolutely horrific. But again, this is just me going on a tangent. So one of these signs is they are going to withdraw. They might become a bit more quiet, a bit more reserved. This could be anything from a psychological reason to also just they don't have the energy. Because another thing you're going to see in a dying person in this preactive stage is that they're going to sleep a lot more and they're going to be a lot more tired. This makes sense. This makes complete sense because obviously everything is beginning to shut down. The body is going to conserve what energy it has to do what it needs to do. Um, and also another sign that someone is in the preactive phase is they have a decreased appetite, decreased interest in food or drink. Because the body doesn't really have necessarily the capabilities to digest as well as it could. Um, you know, if, if someone's dying, the last thing they are going to be thinking about is food and water because that is a need that we have to keep us alive. We need to have water. We need to have food. If someone's dying already, the body isn't going to really maybe send those signals anymore. And if they aren't really awake or they're not expending the amount of energy as someone who isn't dying would in a usual day, then they wouldn't need it necessarily. This kind of also runs into an ethical thing because I know doctors and people in palliative care have talked about this a lot. When a patient is dying, they're not eating or drinking anything and the family are insisting on like feeding tubes and hooking them up to drips and to keep them hydrated and all this sort of stuff. And I get it. I do get it, but also the doctors do know what they're doing, I believe, in this stage, in this phase. And why? Why would we subject someone who isn't really necessarily all there, um, psychologically or mentally speaking, to... You can't force feed someone who's dying. It doesn't make sense. You're not going to prolong their life. And chances are they're not hungry. They're not missing this stuff anyway. Um, they will also start to show periods of pausing in the breathing. So there'll be some sort of apnea going on there. So they might be breathing and then they stop. 
and then they start breathing again. And this will increase, I guess, uh, I don't want to say get worse, but it gets a bit more extreme as they go into the active phase. But it is what I, I believe it's uh, Cheney Stokes breathing, but I'll get a little bit into that later. Another thing that the patient usually does, and this is something that really astounds me, and I'm going to talk about it now, and it's present in preactive and active phase of dying, is the person knows they are dying. They know it is only a matter of weeks or days. I guess this does make sense. If you think about it, you've lived in your body your entire life. When things start shutting down, you are going to begin noticing. But I just think that is incredible because to me, it must almost be a subconscious thing that you just immediately know and say, no, something's wrong. Um, and because the patient knows that they are dying, they will start requesting to see family members, friends. They are trying to resolve unfinished business. It can actually be quite a productive time for the patient, for the person who is close to death, because they want to go peacefully. They want to go without any worries on their mind. And it is just so common that this is actually a sign that medical staff look out for. Is the person like, no, we need to sort this now? Because if that is the case, then their death is coming soon. So that's kind of what you can expect from the preactive phase of dying. You might see some swelling in the extremities. They might also begin to get a little bit colder. Circulation isn't going to be as good. Also bear in mind, if someone is terminally ill and they're dying, chances are they're not really going to be moving. Now in saying that, people in the preactive phase can also get quite agitated. Not necessarily to the point where they are in severe psychological distress, but they might be a bit fidgety, might be a bit bored. They want to move around and change positions and that sort of thing. Um, and that's kind of, yeah, that's, that's a good summary, I suppose, of what you can expect. The active phase generally lasts a few days. Again, completely subjective. I remember when my mother went into the active phase, she held on... Oh, Gosh, what was it? Because I remember the morning um, I'd gone to see her the day before and I knew it was coming. She was slumped over. She wasn't really responding. She couldn't really stay awake. And the next day the hospice called and said, it's going to be today, tomorrow, that kind of thing. So everyone rushes to her bedside. We're all there. She held on for another week, which <laughs> I thought was pretty cool. Pretty cool of her to do. But there are so many signs now in the active phase of dying that I don't think I'd be able to really get through all of them. Um, but I'm going to kind of give you a rundown of some of the more common ones. So one of them is basically coma, ultimately. Uh, this, again, was something that I've seen happen from personal experience. My mother may be after that is she the day I went in again I'm just reminiscing here she I think she said about two or three sentences within that week because she was asleep pretty much the entire time now they do say that the patient can hear you but they go into a coma and you cannot wake them and if you can it is with great difficulty and they will be awake for the briefest of moments before they fall back into this unresponsive um comatose state ultimately this is kind of, I don't want to say it's what you want, but for me, I, I'm kind of grateful that we had that because another one of the signs is mania, unfortunately. This one is quite distressing to hear. Um, 
it's quite upsetting. But patients start hallucinating, which I think can be quite harmless in and of itself, but they get very distressed, very agitated, um, they can act quite unwell, mentally speaking, and I can just imagine that that is very, very awful for the family. Now, in saying that actually hallucinations are seen in the preactive stage as well, usually the advice that is given is that you go along with what the patient is telling you they are seeing unless it's something that threatens them. So, for example, if the patient says like, oh, I can see my grandmother, I can see my parents, you go along with that. You let them have this because you don't want to distress them emotionally. If they are hallucinating something that is threatening to them, then it is okay to step in and say, no, that's not real, ultimately. Obviously, again, in much nicer terms, but just gently explain to them that they are safe and no one is going to hurt them. I just think that sounds absolutely horrendous. Um, but I do always say, you know, like dying is messy. This is something that I really want to get across. It is not always this lovely, peaceful thing. It can be. And we do all want a good death. I think that is a universal truth dependent on where you are from, what kind of culture you grew up in and what your attitude towards death is. But a lot of people do hope for a peaceful death. And the reality is that that is not always the case. Now, in saying that with these symptoms of severe distress, medicalization of death is to a degree quite good, I think, because in these cases we can manage the pain and we can manage the symptoms. I say we, I mean the professionals in palliative care. I wouldn't really have too much of an idea, but the patients can be sedated. They can be given medications to make them feel calm, at ease, and just relaxed about what is going to happen next. A few other changes will come about. Um, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the Cheney-Stokes breathing, this really comes into play here. So there are going to be lots of changes in their breathing in general. So again, they might stop breathing for a little while. Now, we kind of know ourselves. We generally, once we finished a breath, we immediately take another one. It is something that we do subconsciously. It is a reflex because we need it. The electrical signals in the brain are becoming a lot more sluggish here. And the patient also isn't using as much oxygen. They don't need as much oxygen. And again, this all sounds very, very distressing and you kind of want to do what's best for them. But if someone is dying and there is nothing that can be done, you can't really treat those kind of things. You can't intubate them in these cases because what would be the point? You may be prolonging suffering. And the, the Cheney-Stokes breathing is just, it's basically a breathing pattern, I suppose, or a lack thereof. Um... So it can go from not breathing for a while, you the patient might breathe very slowly or they can start breathing really fast and it's this just irregular breath and even that aside, the more I suppose disturbing breath pattern we see in dying patients is what is commonly known as the death rattle. I don't actually know what the scientific name is, this is all I know it as and in my experience, that is accurate. Um, it is, without a doubt for me, one of the most disturbing things I've ever heard. Once I found out what it was scientifically, I was a little less scared. But at the time hearing it, it's something that doesn't really leave your mind. So what happens with the death rattle? Well, basically, this is generally 
in a dying patient who is comatose, who isn't responding. And basically mucus will build up at the back of your throat. This happens to all of us. It is not exclusive to them. But we clear our throats and we swallow. And we do it all the time. Again, it's a reflex. It's something we do without thinking. So it doesn't hinder our breathing, our respiration. When someone is dying, obviously because they are no longer awake and it's not even the case that it's, oh, they're just asleep. It's that they do not have the energy or the capabilities to do that anymore. This mucus pools in the back of their mouth and in their throat. So the sound that you're hearing in the death rattle is actually the air moving through this mucus and bubbling through it. And it can be different for everyone. It is different for everyone. But it is quite a distressing noise. But I think the best thing to know about it is that it is not distressing the patient at all. Um, the family and the loved ones, completely different situation. Of course, it is upsetting, but it doesn't hurt the patient. Um, there's, they can, I believe, give medications to clear this stuff out. But a lot of times it's not really necessary. If it is necessary, it is for the benefit of the family as opposed to the patient themselves. I do think that's part of palliative care is looking after the family, but obviously the patient is the first priority and making their journey into their death a little bit more peaceful um, and as comfortable as they possibly can. So since they are comatose or they are just in this very active stage of dying, they're not really going to be able to swallow fluids or food. This is when you really do not want to force feed or force any liquids on a dying patient because they will probably choke they can choke and again this is a point of confusion between the healthcare providers and the families because they're like they haven't drank any water in days it's like you know of course that is a distressing but you can't give them water because if they're not conscious or if they don't have the capability to swallow they're just going to choke on it and that is very distressing and of course very uncomfortable for the patient and obviously we don't want that to be how they die this kind of gasping for air. The patient may also become incontinent with like urinary and bowel movements. And there may be a change in the urine. It will be a lot darker. It might even be brown or red. I don't know the exact reason for this, but I know the urine is going to be darker and less frequent because there's no water going into them. And the same with bowel movements. If they're not eating, there's nothing really to pass out. But if they are, it is a possibility then that there will be incontinence in that um, in that case. Blood pressure is going to drop very, very low. Uh, yeah, yeah, again, it's all expected, I suppose, isn't it? If you think about it, because what is happening when you're in this preactive and active phase of dying is because dying is a process, things are shutting down slowly. Not necessarily one after the other. I don't know the exact order and if they always go in this order if there's just an expected one but everything is just quietly slowly just saying okay we don't need this anymore we don't need to do this anymore we don't need to do this your faculties are are stopping forever because obviously the last thing that's going to stop generally is your heart and your brain and your breathing and that sort of thing so i mentioned earlier that they will maybe get a bit colder there might be some swelling in the extremities this is going to become even more um, pronounced and prevalent in the active phase of dying because again what's what's the point I suppose you know uh, for risk of repeating myself here there's no need for blood to be going to your hands and your feet because you're not using them 
anymore um, and if the patient is conscious they might complain that they can't feel their hands and their feet. Another thing that you are going to potentially notice is that the where am I? <laughs> um, the patient states they're going to die again. So this is seen in both of the phases and again I just think it's astounding. I think it's absolutely incredible that we know but I suppose it's not really a human exclusive thing is it if we look at like a, what I've said with dogs and cats wanting to be alone but it's because they know they're dying and I think that is just such a a strange I don't want to say feature but that's the only word I can think of feature to have as a sentient being that you are aware you're going to die and I wonder what kind of purpose it serves evolutionary speaking or is it just something that we have for the sake of having I suppose now another thing you're going to see is um cyanosis so this is the like hands feet extremities going sort of blue purplish this is because there's no circulation going to them ultimately so they're going to change color another thing that you may or may not see is mottling um, I don't know if this is necessarily the same thing as cyanosis but I did see it happening and um, it's it's confusing it's strange but the the skin is starting to mottle the blood cells aren't really working the way they used to it looks like almost bruises and these strange little patterns but again it's not uncomfortable for the patient it's not painful or anything like that the patient may become quite rigid they may not move even in the case of they are being conscious and their jaw and their head might sort of slump to the side um this was i think now that i think about it the first thing i saw with my mother when her active phase of dying was she could no longer walk at this point so i was pushing her in a wheelchair and her head was slumped forward and that was sort of i think the calling card and what made the hospice staff sort of sit up and say okay this, this is happening uh, it wasn't that dramatic <laughs> so yeah I, that's that's kind of it so the active phase will last a few days like I said completely dependent with my mother it was a week the thing that most people find distressing is sort of the the, the breathing patterns ultimately I think because that is such you're so used to hearing people breathe and you don't even realize you are that once it's gone it's too quiet and that was definitely the case with my mother because she had the death rattle now her breathing was quite slow um but it was fairly regular she didn't stop for extended periods of time maybe a little bit more than the i guess average person but it wasn't really anything to take notice and there was a definite pattern you know it was repetitive and that was the most I suppose shocking part of it that was the most worrying part I remember the night she passed um I called a nurse into her room and I was like I was very selfish I suppose well you can't really call anyone in that situation selfish can you but I ask can you stop this noise because it was 11 o'clock at night 12 o'clock um myself and my sister were sleeping at the hospice at that stage and she was like it's not really much else we can do you know we've already given her something to try dry out the fluid but like it's not bothering her and I just sort of had to accept that and be like yeah you're right but it is such a odd surreal experience 
And I think even if we talk about these phases of dying and even if we normalize it, that is in no way an attempt to dismiss or reduce how traumatizing it is to witness because I'd never seen anything like it. Again, I wasn't prepared. I'm always going to preach that. This is why we need to be prepared so we know what to expect. But even if you do know, even if you go in saying, yep, okay, so they're gonna have cold hands and cold feet and they might not be able to feel them and they might not want to talk as much and they might turn to face the wall and they may have incontinence, nothing really can prepare you for the practical. Um, nothing, nothing. It is, reading about it is all very well and good, but seeing it happen is very foreign, I suppose. It is upsetting because to you, if someone is what sounds like struggling with their breathing or they're getting agitated or they're not waking up, you want to help them because you love them and it's another person. And to you, it seems like they're suffering or they're struggling and they're in pain. And I guess it's that knowing that it's generally not like that. It, in the case of terminally ill patients, they usually will go comatose. There are exceptions to that rule. But as the experts have kind of observed, they're not really suffering anymore. They can still hear, you know, you should talk to them like they can hear you. Um, don't speak about them as if they're not there because that's just a little bit rude, isn't it? And sort of if they have these hallucinations or if they see someone who's gone before them and someone they loved and they're like, oh, I need to go join this person, encourage that and honor that. I think it's very important that we respect that because you don't want to necessarily break that delusion in their head um, because you want them to be at peace and you want them to feel good about the fact that they are going to die very, very soon. Oh, <laughs> I have to take a minute there to decompress. I know it's a lot of information that is coming out of me at top speed. Um, I do try to slow myself down, but it even if I do slow myself down, it is a lot but it's also a lot for me to to say, if that makes sense. I don't really stop for breath much when I speak. I just kind of go, 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 go. And it's a very conscious effort to make it as digestible as I can. I think that's part of the death acceptance journey is realizing that not everyone is going to be in the same place as you. No one is going to be in the same place as you. The only reason I am where I am is because I got so hyper fixated on this and just launched myself into it. And this has been years of me researching things, but I'm learning new things all the time because there are so many, so many facets to this that I could do this forever and talk about this forever and never be done. I also, I was listening back to the last recording and I wanted to clarify something. This I always do this. I leave out a word or some sort of clarity. <laughs> so um, I'm just referring back to when I spoke about my mother and the breathing and how I called in a nurse and said, can you make this noise stop? Just want to clarify. Wasn't talking about her breathing. Didn't want her to stop breathing. Because <laughs> that makes me sound horrendous. Like awful, awful human being youngest child just stabbing her in the back absolutely not no um I was referring to the death rattle I was very upset and I thought it might be uncomfortable for her but also it was quite honestly very uncomfortable for me it was late at night I couldn't sleep it was really loud and you at that point 
are desperate, I suppose, in certain ways. I can't really shame people for how they act in those situations because you, I, I think death brings out the best in people and it is amazing to see communities come together and help each other out. Um, especially, I, I can only speak for the Irish culture, neighbours and that sort of thing. But, oh my God, do you also, you're so tired you're very very tired and that is also just a little point I want to make not necessarily the point of this episode but in general me having this sort of accepting open attitude towards death is not with the intent to reduce or dismiss the experience um, because it is huge it's a massive thing that happens and it's also really hard and I remember the exhaustion and I remember wanting it all to really honest just be over already um because it is horrendous you're you're losing someone you love in this long drawn out way and that is torture is absolute torture and it's still something that's quite upsetting for me and even though I can speak about it now and be quite objective about it and just say yeah that's what happened and I don't get upset there are moments sometimes where when I'm speaking about it I really remember what happened and I kind of have to go and I have to sort of take a minute and breathe through it because it was very traumatic. I was 21 years old. Um, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what was going on. And yeah, I just I, I just want to, to let you all know that me with this interest, it's not, I don't delight when someone dies, you know? I'm not this like, Ugh. like, oh, can I come slap the body? Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. It's because I want to make this a little bit more lighthearted and more safe space where people can learn about things. And the reason I'll kind of make jokes or laugh is because it is just a fact of life and there are times to be serious and there are also times to just kind of acknowledge it for what it is, maybe make a joke out of it as you can and just that's it really. That is it. In short, my ideology is kind of nuanced I suppose you know I don't say I'm confronting death I'm coming face to face with death I also I'm not saying I'm laughing in the face of death I think what I'm doing is I sit with it and sometimes I acknowledge the enormity of what it is and the weight that holds and I respect that and other times I laugh with it because you have to you know and other times I turn my face and I say I don't want to think about you right now I don't want anything to do with you right now and that's okay too because with anything we all need a break and nothing is that black and white I don't have a love-hate relationship with death I just have a relationship which means that there are going to be a number of reactions to that and a number of ways that I think about that and that is what I hope comes for you and that is what I I want for everyone out there listening. And with that let's wrap up this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Um, It has been (laughs) surprisingly more personal than I expected it to be. I thought I would be like right we're gonna go through the two phases of dying. I'm gonna be done in like 10 minutes. Bingo bango bongo. No no we went into more deep philosophical things but that's what happens when you take someone with um attention deficit disorder 
<laughs> and sit them down with no script and say, you have free reign to talk about whatever you want. That's what happens. But thank you again so much for listening. I hope you learned something new. I hope you felt comfortable uh, in learning about something new. And I hope you are being kind to yourself and the people you love. Thank you so much for sharing this space with me and I'll see you next time.